0: Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply, at all protected.
2: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. We're going to talk on this particular episode with regard to Ethiopian Airlines and their 737 MAX accident that occurred in March of 2019, some of the the preliminary issues, and of course, some of the certification issues and oversight issues by the Ethiopian government. So with that, I want to turn it back over to John to introduce our special guest.
1: Again, we have with us today George Snyder, who is the president and CEO of GHS Aviation Group. And he's a friend and a former VP of safety for U.S. Airways, as well as the former VP of safety and security for Korean Airlines. And he has extensive experience in the the Asian and Pacific environment, and he does safety audits around the world, helping companies make themselves better. And we uh, welcome his thoughts and his ideas to help
2: make things better. Thank you, John. Thank you, Greg. It's good to see you again. One of the things that we're talking about today, and uh, and again, John and I have a lot of conversations offline about a lot of these issues, so we always appreciate the expertise that somebody like you brings into the conversation. So with that being said, Ethiopian Airlines, the 737 MAX that crashed several months after the Lion Air 737 MAX. All of a sudden now, the focus, of course, has been brought to the 737, the Boeing company, as far as their certification process, of course, our FAA. But we have to turn back and look at Ethiopian Airlines. I mean, one of the the things that we've seen is that there aren't a lot of, if any, maintenance issues being developed with that particular accident. It's more operationally focused with that flight crew and the flight training and so with with all of that, what do you see in a global perspective from an operational standpoint that the uh, at least the investigative authorities should be focusing on in that particular investigation greg i th-
0: I think there's a lot of things that uh, not not just that part of the world but the entire industry is sort of waking up to uh, You highlighted the certification process. Uh, you uh, highlighted the relationship between the OEM uh, and the FA in, in this country, which is, is being reviewed. We don't, uh, as as you've correctly indicated, the uh, final report is on the Ethiopian accident has not yet been issued. There's been some preliminary information, which uh, uh, I think you're going to speak with later on. But from a, a maintenance and airworthiness point of view, uh, this was uh, essentially a brand-new airplane. Uh, with essentially brand new components and, and systems installed. Uh, there were no, uh, at least to the best of uh, my knowledge, there were no uh, previous discrepancies, chronic, repetitive uh, technical issues with the airplane. From an airworthiness point of view, it seemed to have been a an excellent aircraft.
2: But some of the preliminary information that has come out is that there, the AOA vein is in question, with its reliability in operation, there's been discussions about the fact that either it failed or it actually came off the aircraft because of a potential or possible bird strike that resulted then in an um, unreliable airspeed issue that the crew was posed with.
0: Yeah, that's what the preliminary information is. It, it seems to, the the seminal event seems to be something to do with the AOA equipment, uh, that either, uh, malfunctioned, uh, as you said, was, was, uh, uh, involve with some sort of structural impact or uh, shortly after liftoff was, was just providing inaccurate information to the flight crew.
2: And while we're probably going to come back with you later on in another episode to talk more and more about these training issues and some of the ramifications of uh, of the elements of this investigation as they come, come out, especially at the final report, the big question I think now is, How well are these pilots, not only at Ethiopian Airlines, but worldwide, how well is our training programs and and the tools that the pilots have available for training to give them all the necessary information and background that they need to operate an aircraft, especially as advanced as these airplanes are getting in this environment today? It's an excellent uh, point,
0: Craig. I think way back when, uh, many years ago, when I joined the airline industry, uh, there were a lot of extremely experienced flight crew uh, on board the airplanes. In fact, 10,000 hours was was considered an average for the commander. 5,000, 4,000 hours was considered an average for the second-in-command. So an airline, when they hired these people, had uh, only really to polish their skills uh, in In the particular aircraft type that they're going to be hired on to bring them up to the level of proficiency and and expertise that they needed to operate the aircraft today that uh, same experience level is not available worldwide we we've uh, probably could have a separate discussion on that, but the airline training programs uh fundamentally have not changed. So if you have, uh, experience that, that is not what it used to be, supplemented, uh, by sort of a legacy training program, we have some, some challenges. And those challenges are overcome by getting good information from the OEM that we feed into the full flight simulators so that we can train and check these pilots on what they may experience during normal line operations. Today, uh, the simulator fidelity on on Level C and Level D simulators uh, almost uh, exactly replicates the aircraft most of the time. But as we found out early on uh, after several upset event accidents, uh, the simulator fidelity in certain conditions that are outside of the uh, flight test envelope of the aircraft, uh, the simulator cannot, by definition, replicate them. So if you're training pilots in an area where the simulator is, it does not have a high level of fidelity, uh, you are not, you're not giving them a value. And in fact, under some circumstances, it's even negative training.
1: On the training issue, Judge, we have a standard for training around the world. It's called ICAO. International Civil Aviation Organization, it's part of the United Nations, and they have a set of minimum training for uh, virtually everybody in aviation. Do you think that today's environment is adequately addressed by the ICAO standard for training?
0: ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, provides a set of standards and recommended practices in, in various uh, disciplines and they provide that information under the Chicago convention to be signed on by the the various ICAO member states of of which many of the uh, states we're talking about are signatories uh, it gives guidance uh, and and again it's not a regulatory issue it, it is guidance uh, the standards for training and checking of of airmen and aircraft uh, ground engineers, are very generic, and they vary significantly from one state to another. So uh, when you get a, a, a member state that has an excellent civil aviation authority underneath it, uh, those standards are equivalent and sometimes uh, surpass some of the standards in, in Europe and North America. Uh, in other cases, uh, that they they don't necessarily are not outside, over, and above the standards in North America and Europe. But at the end of the day, and as you've correctly indicated, there are standards that must be maintained by the flight crew, and
2: both that for
0: initial and recurrent training.
2: And, and you bring up a good point about the fact that ICAO is only uh, recommended practices and standards. Yes, sir. Given the fact that they don't have any teeth, who's going to hold them accountable as far as the the member state or the or the carrier um, with regard to the the operating standard or the training standard. And then with a follow-up to that, because these member states that have a, an investigative authority, they can do things in an independent way. Here in the United States, we have in, uh, NTSB, which is the Independent Acts Investigation Authority. Ethiopia does not have that. Their government is running the investigation without having that level of independence. So how— How is it that they're going to be held accountable if they put out a report that biases the fact that their pilots were great, the airline was great, and it was a bad airplane, when in fact all the facts, conditions, and circumstances may not support that?
0: Really raised two excellent questions. One, how do how does the aviation, international aviation industry sort of police itself over and above ICAO, over and above the state uh, civil aviation authorities? And IATA has really done us a great uh, service by creating the IATA Operational Safety Audit uh, Evaluation Program. This is a set of almost uh, well, it's eight hundred ninety five standards in eight different disciplines that a airline to become IOSA registered and meet these international standards has to successfully complete so over and above the civil aviation regulatory oversight, now we have IOSA, which is a set of standards highly above. And Ethiopian Airlines is was one of the first airlines to be IOSA registered. Secondly, the concept of the autonomous, independent uh, acts investigation board—that is something that can
2: the importance cannot be overstated. And when you were with uh, with Korean Air, of course, I was the investigator in charge on the Korean Air eight hundred one accident in Guam. Yes, and out of that investigation, the safety board made a recommendation because at the time Korea didn't have an independent investigative authority. Yet we made the recommendation and the Koreans did in fact create this independent investigative authority. But we also made recommendations to Korean Air for changes. Can you just give us a real nutshell of what changes that you incorporated based on that accident?
0: Well, first of all, uh, the, the uh, NTSB did a tremendous service to Korea, to to the industry, by making that recommendation for an, an independent autonomous uh, investigation bureau, which, in fact, the Korean government uh, implemented almost uh, immediately after the recommendation was made. People were identified within the Korean government. They were trained uh, right, right here in Washington through the NTSB Academy, shadowed uh, you and, and a lot of the other investigators in charge. Uh, to really learn how to conduct a comprehensive, objective, and and, and a valuable investigation. So that helped. That helped Korea, and that helped the world. Secondly, uh, when you made the recommendations to Korean Air, uh, there was some significant changes made to uh, really uh, driven by the the corporate cultural change where we started to uh, really take our training and evaluation seriously uh, that uh, we brought it uh, up almost immediately to international standards. They were always at the regulatory standards for Korea but they were, were brought up a little above so again the recommendations that were made were immediately uh, implemented and it's made Korean Air the safe uh, airline
2: that it is today. And one of those recommendations even though it didn't name you by name, Korean Air did reach out. They went overseas. They brought in you um, as their vice president of safety and security, which brought in a different perspective, given your your airline background and, and that kind of thing. Do we really uh, see that there's going to be any kind of recurrence of the issues that we developed with, uh, with 801 in the future for Korean Air, or have they been mitigated or eliminated? in in the training or the uh, operations of the airline
0: I think one of the recommendations to to bring in outside expertise, and and we had a, a excellent gentleman by the name of Mr. David Greenberg, uh, former Delta Airlines exec VP of operations. Myself, another gentleman, uh, Captain Bill Hardy from from uh, Canada. Uh, it just brought in some some outside expertise, a different perspective, and it brought in the quality assurance program, which speaks to exactly what you're talking about, not allowing any type of degradation of, of safety standards to ensure and continually assure that systems, process, and controls are in fact delivering the desired results and not allowing it to go back to the past.
1: Judge, one of the criticisms that I often hear about certain cultures, Asian, a lot of Asian, is that the captain is the senior person on the airplane and the other crew members don't ever want to raise any issues with them, don't want to uh, say anything negative, bring bad news to the, to the boss, so to speak. Uh, How did you overcome that in Korean Airlines?
0: We had a great group of people to work with. We, uh, obviously, uh, seven fatal losses in five years brings an urgency to the organization that things that have been done in the past can no longer continue. The corporate culture that uh, was uh, changed within Korean Air is, is really uh, sort of a gold template. It should be the, the role model for other uh, cultural changes going forward. We, we did not dispute the autonomy of Korean culture and tradition. We did not want to change uh, any of the practices outside of the airplane but what we did establish was when you were on a Korean Air flight deck you were similar to being in an embassy in another country while outside of that flight deck or outside of that embassy it was the laws of of the state on which the embassy was was located but once you walk through those gates once you walk through that flight deck door it was a separate autonomous safety culture that was consistent with the aviation industry practices at that time, separate and apart from any of those command authority issues that, that you've referred to. Once you're on a Korean Air flight deck, that is the way you operated. Once you were outside, we went back to normal culture and tradition.
1: How long did that transition take?
0: Three to five years is sort of the global template, uh, from the time someone or an organization indicates that a cultural change needs to take place to have that fully ingrained, not, not just uh, on the surface, but to have that culture and, and those traditions actually taking place when supervisory people are not looking on a on a saturday night late at night when when no no foreman or no checkpots are looking it takes 3 to 5 years and the constant reinforcement that greg was talking about
2: that's going to be probably the subject of another episode with you because You know, everybody wants instantaneous change and they want it now. And if there's a deficiency identified, they expect that the airline's going to implement it and overnight they're going to have, you know, the best pilots or the best mechanics, you know, operating and that airline's going to be at 100% safety. And so I know that we're going to bring you back for sure to talk about these things and the transitions and what it takes to change, not only an organizational culture, but, of course, a safety culture, both here in the United States and abroad. So, again, we want to uh, say thanks again, as always, for coming down and uh, and being on the show with us. You bring a, a high level of expertise.
1: Yes, George, thank you very much. And uh, when we come back, I probably want to talk to you more about how you drove the change within the maintenance department. I know that uh, at one point in time you had me over there, and I spent a fair amount of time with your maintainers, and uh, it was impressive.
0: Great group of people, and thank you so much for your personal commitment to come over there. And, Greg, as I see on 801, you really, truly uh, helped to contribute to that cultural change Korean Air. Thank you.
1: Well, Greg, that was a very interesting discussion we had with George, raising a lot of, a lot of uh, very good points and uh, actually gave me a couple of issues to think about uh, as we go forward with this podcast and with the investigations. Certainly, they get very complicated when you get the countries that don't have an independent accident investigation element to their government. And in fact, in Ethiopia, with the government owning the airline, as well as being the secretary of transportation, being the spokesman for the investigation, it raises some serious concerns. So you've operated in that environment in the past, and uh, maybe you can share with us some of the... Problems that you had in those environments and, and what you 've seen
2: well, one of the big things, John, and, and again, uh, having worked at the NTSB and you were a, a vital part of that when when we are tasked with doing an acts investigation, whether it 's here in the United States or uh, assisting a foreign authority as technical advisors, our primary purpose is to develop thorough and methodical processes so that we can develop all of the factual um, information, such as the facts, conditions, and circumstances of the accident. The whole process of developing all that factual information isn't just to find out what the cause of the accident was and, and point the finger at somebody, but in fact, it is to identify those issue or issue areas that caused or contributed to the accident, but really formed the basis for safety recommendations that are going to improve aviation safety, whether it's here in the United States with our regulatory authority or an aircraft manufacturer or an operator. But that same premise follows suit all over the world. And by not having an independent investigative authority like they have in Ethiopia, they have the government doing the investigation. How is it that they're going to be able to point the finger at themselves if they are, in fact, a contributor to the whole process? And that is especially with oversight. We we look, the NTSB looks at the FAA to see if they were deficient in their oversight. And we see that quite a bit. If you read every blue cover report, the FAA is always discussed by the NTSB in some way, shape, or form. Now the question is, how is it that a non-independent investigative authority such as Ethiopia can look in the mirror and say, yes, we were a problem. We had deficient oversight. They should have done more things at the carrier. The training programs should have been better.
1: We had those exact same problems here in the United States. I can remember years ago when the CAB was in the uh, investigative authority for aircraft accidents. And many, many people were unhappy with that. And finally, in the uh, 1966, Congress created the NTSB, which started life in 1967. And even then, they kept the NTSB under the Department of Transportation. And it didn't take but a few years before problems came up with that because the Secretary of Transportation was, I'll use the word, interfering with the investigations uh, to a point where the outcry from both the NTSB personnel and other people in the industry got louder and louder, and finally, in the early 70s, I think it was 1972, might have been 71, uh, Congress said enough, and they made the NTSB an independent authority and gave the NTSB, by law, it's, it's right in the structure, the, the, the actual law itself that says that the NTSB is expected to criticize other agencies by name, when there's a deficiency. That's and we very see that unique. in
2: life. We see that in life. It's real easy for us to be critical of others. It's very difficult for us to be self-critical, especially if we think we had some contribution to whatever event may not have turned out as we planned. And, and that's why it's so important that we have these independent investigations worldwide, because we're all out for the same uh, bottom line, and that is to improve aviation safety in some way, shape, or form. But if there's going to be a slant to the way the facts, conditions, and circumstances are presented or interpreted. And those slants have a uh, an adverse effect on the bottom line. Who was going to be held accountable for what? And then, of course, how do you develop a good safety recommendation to improve the system if you really don't have the proper perspective?
1: It's important for everybody. You know, If on the 737 MAX issues, we did not have any problems in the United States. If we only focused on the United States, there would have been no improvements to the fraud. All right. But by having information coming into us worldwide from operators, it's going to change the system. We've seen it on other airplanes, not just the MAX. We've seen it in the system. You know, Americans fly on all these foreign airplanes, as do the Dutch and the French and so on and so on. All right. This, this is a worldwide representative of people. Yes. And having a, a investigative body that can make observations, opinions, and recommendations based across the board without fear of retribution in their own country is very, very important.
2: Absolutely. and And we've seen it here over and over and over again where— you know, Americans flying on not only uh, U.S. flag carriers, but overseas. We see folks in France, and we see folks in Europe, and and even in Asia, demanding someone to be held accountable. And while we don't like that term with regard to accident investigation, we're not trying to hold people accountable from a litigation uh, point of view. We are trying to understand who had the responsibility, why did that responsibility fail, and if it did fail, then how are we going to fix that so that these folks are accountable or responsible, whether it is a government agency, an airline, uh, or any other alphabet organization that has some contribution to that event. And I think that that uh, that is, again, one of those things that To have that independence, it's going to be real interesting to see what the Ethiopians put out as far as a report to see how slanted it is. We saw that in brevity a little bit with the preliminary report, the report that they wrote about the flight, the way it was presented by the Minister of Transport in her briefing of the international press. It was 180 degrees out of face. The facts were cited in the report, but the way she interpreted those facts— made that sound like their pilots and their airline were the best in the world and that it was a bad airplane, and that is not necessarily true.
1: Uh, You know what it reminds me of? Where we were with politics in this country, and maybe in some cases where we are with politics in this country, is the politicians will say whatever they want, regardless of the facts. Whatever it takes to get their point across, for them to to, uh, make it seem like they know what they're doing, they will uh, say it. But the facts come in behind it, and you're wrong. I mean, we see it today with so many of these news organizations that are doing fact check on what our politicians say on the campaign trail, and it seems like every single time they do that, they identify a whole bunch of things that were uh, less than 100% accurate and truthful. So we've, hopefully we're not going to see that in either one of these investigations, but we'll have to wait to see.
2: Well, while we don't want to jump the gun because we don't know what's going to be in either the Indonesian uh, report on Lion Air or the Ethiopians report uh, about their 737 MAX accident, um, I think that this call to action should be not only, you know, worldwide, but definitely focused here in the United States. The NTSB is a technical advisor to the investigation authority over in Ethiopia. They have the power to at least make a recommendation in their submission as part of the process to to recommend, like we did with uh, Korea and uh, through the Korean Air investigation, that they create an independent investigative authority that falls in line with the recommended practices and standards of ICAO. And I think that a call to action, if that does not happen or they balk at that, I think that the uh, the folks, at least here in the United States, should be on the phone or letter-writing campaign to their congressman that gets the United States government to push that issue because we do need thorough and methodical investigations that are unbiased, that have no perspective other than to interpret properly and fairly. The facts, conditions, and circumstances, for the sole purpose of enhancing aviation safety.
1: And we've seen in the U.S. how family members can can drive part of that process. We've got changes in the U.S. to uh, certification of pilots. I mean, we have today the fifteen hundred hour rule that was driven by the family members out of the Kogan crash in Buffalo, New York. I think we've had a number of Americans that were perished on these accidents in Lion Air and in uh, Ethiopia and those family members should be pushing real hard here in Washington to get the NTSB to, to do whatever they can do as part of the investigation. It isn't just influencing it inside the tent, so to speak, while the investigation is going on, but they can actually write an independent report if they feel so motivated, if they, if they think it's so convoluted, and, uh, but it takes a little bit of, of pressure on the government for them to take that step, that is a pretty drastic step.
2: Well, while you and I could probably talk the rest of the, <laughs> the day about all of these issues, we're going to wrap this podcast up. But for you, the audience, if you have any questions, any comments, please feel free to provide those to us because we like to read them. And of course, we'd like to address them in the following podcast. So if you have those questions or comments, concerns, and that kind of thing, please drop us an email at flight. Safety detectives all one word at gmail dot com
1: and that's detectives with an s. I made the mistake trying to get on myself so it's
2: so Lights. you're cutting me out of this detective thing? Yeah. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, John. I'm not sure that we're going to be partners much longer. So anyway, well, thanks for listening to this episode, and we look forward to having you involved with us in this show. Hopefully it brings good perspective uh, to some of the issues that you don't necessarily get to read or see on TV or in the mainstream media. So again, till our next episode, I'm Greg Fife. I'm John Golia. And have a safe flight.
0: To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.